chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and while you're turning, let's pray. Father, we pray that this time we've set aside for you, that you would be here with us, that you would teach us and edify and strengthen us, that you would show us things out of your word, and that you would teach us the things that would help us in our lives, that we would become conformed to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. We are, of course, approaching Christmas time, and in a way, this will be about Christmas, but Bible studies, uh, sermons, uh, you, can, you can and you should take the pieces of the puzzle apart and look at small pieces and really zero in, hone in, and make sure your definitions are good and everything is accurate and defined. Sometimes when a fill-in idiot gets up there, he likes to step back and look at bigger picture. It's Blame it on the day job. But I just love looking at God's overall whole plan sometimes. And so if we had to call this something, we would say a child, unto us a child is born. That verse out of Isaiah that we quote at Christmas time, because that's what this is about, that Jesus came to this earth born of a woman. He came as a child. God did not send an angel. God did not send even though Jesus was an out-of-this-earth being, he came as an earthly being. And that's very important. Biblically speaking, there are legal ramifications. There's precedent set in the Bible about what Adam did. God was only going to undo that through another man. That's why in New Testament, God talks about Jesus as the second Adam. There's a reason he uses that phrase, because he wants his identity in our mind to know that he did this stuff as a man. Anyway, you can look at the pieces of the puzzle and not ever put together all the different pieces to look at the whole picture. You can think of the crossing of the Red Sea by the Israelites as something completely disjointed from Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And obviously, in a way, it is. You can look at Jonah being swallowed by a fish as completely separate, disjointed. Pick any story, David killing Goliath. But it really all is a consistent theme and story told to get you to this point, Jesus coming into this earth. And we're going to go back toward the beginning of the Bible to start out with God giving mankind some information about this whole story. And in Genesis chapter 3 is Adam... And Eve, and we often people forget there was a third being in the garden. The serpent, Satan, through the wiles, his subtlety, convinced them to sin against God. And after that, God comes to them in the garden in verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the, the serpent, keep in mind now, he is saying all of the, the next two verses, he's speaking to The serpent. Most people read this and only picture Adam and Eve standing there. He has a message for the serpent. This is hugely important because after this verse, every single verse in the Bible from here on out can be looked through the prism of what Satan is trying to do to undermine what he's about to be told. Look at what he is told here. The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because you have done this, you... Thou art cursed above all cattle, 
Above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity, that is a warring, that's a not getting along, conflict. I will put conflict between thee and the woman. And now this is very interesting. And between thy seed and her seed. Now we're going to try to steer off the rabbit trail, but people, do you realize God just talked about Satan's seed? I'm going to get off of that really quick. But that's very interesting to me. From here on out through the Bible, there is something in the earth warring between people that are being either used of the devil or controlled, filled with whatever. They're on his side somehow, whether they know it or not, against God's people. And it doesn't mean that everybody that comes from Eve, because all of mankind comes from her, doesn't mean that everybody is good or everybody is evil. There's choices to be made, each individual choice. But notice, between thy seed and her seed, and what's the difference? What was he putting between there? An enmity, a conflict. And it shall, it is the woman's seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And right there is the next 2,122 pages in your Bible. It's a struggle between what God has promised would come into the earth one day. His son. Against who? The devil and anybody that is voluntarily, involuntarily working for or with him. This is amazing. It's right here. Now to try to give some evidence to looking at it that way, because that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to go through a lot of different stories, and you can look at them through as just one piece, get it away from the puzzle, and just study it, get a lot of good information, but we're going to try to look at it as the piece to this whole puzzle. In the two verses we just read, what would you say is the most important word in those two verses? I can tell you what comes to my mind. Maybe it's just... I'm sorry? Cursed. Yes, the, the, the serpent, is, he is cursed, and that's his description. All of verse 14. But because of what follows, and history is a lot more than one person. Even Adam lived 930 years. That's a long time. But the earth's been going a long time since Adam. Which makes me look at the word seed. Because see, there's always seed coming in. Whether it's plant, animal, humans... The seed, the way God created this earth is that every that seed is in the plant. It bears of itself. Tomatoes will produce it because there's a tomato, or there's tons of tomatoes inside the one. There's seeds all over inside that thing. It reproduces. Same thing with people. And this earth is a story of seed. And we're going to look at how, I want you to take notice and be sensitive to how the Word of God, God's Word to mankind, is filled with this imagery. Because again, any one of us, you, you may be here for, say, let's say 90 years, and anything over that is, is definitely gravy. Nothing really is promised a, a, a very long lifespan. And so our slice on this earth is so small. And yet, there's people like Abraham, David, and Moses who are mentioned all the time because of what they did, their lineage... Their seed gets mentioned all the time. It doesn't always mean that it's because of what they did. 
Hopefully we'll try to bring that into it. But this idea that the seed, God is pointing out right here that from this day on, something is going to come from the woman and he is going to crush the serpent's head. You can see it, you can picture it. Something goes off in Satan's mind. And the next story in your Bible is Cain kills Abel. I don't think that is something that we just read as, well, that just happenstance. That's one way that Satan is trying to keep what from happening. The seed of that woman of getting to me. Because he's had Cain and Abel, now he's just down to one. If he can kill off Cain, if, if Eve falls, hits her head, doesn't recover, you're going to see this throughout the Bible. So Cain kills Abel, God replaces with Seth. It goes very, very quickly through a couple thousand years, and you get to Noah. And what's Noah's story? Look at Genesis chapter 6. We know that God sent a flood because some, some terrible wickedness in the earth. That I am putting a lot of effort into not going down a certain path that I would love to go down. But Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 tells us something about why Noah got on the ark. Noah, these are the generations of Noah. What's that word generations mean? Seed, where he came from and what comes after him. His lineage, it specifically draws your attention to what? Where Noah came from. Noah was a just man. It draws your attention that he made good choices. He was godly and he was perfect in his generations, plural. That does not say he was perfect compared to everybody around him. If you wanted to say that, you would say, well, he was perfect in his generation. Singular. This says he was perfect in his generations. That tells me I need to get out a genealogy map and know well, where did he come from. Because that's what it's talking about. He was perfect in where he came from. Now, it may sound very odd for somebody to point out this kind of stuff. In today's culture, you get charged as a bigot, a racist, a xenophobe, anything if you just point out the differences between one group of people and another. We're just all the same. The Bible doesn't do that. So I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to be honest and biblical. Noah was pulled out of the whole culture to build an ark to save he and his family for what reason? He was, let's say, untainted. He was uncorrupted. The word corruption is used all throughout this Noah story, that the earth was corrupted, not Noah. That's why he got on the ark. That's why God chose him. Now it goes really fast. You don't know hardly anything about his three sons. Almost nothing. Why? Not all that, not a whole lot of importance. But you quickly get Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And there's this guy that came from one of Noah's kids, Shem. And his name is Abram. His name will get changed later to Abraham, but Genesis 12.1, The Lord God said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country. Now back then, your country, your surroundings, who were probably living next to you? Probably didn't travel much. You didn't, your kid didn't grow up and move to Seattle or Florida or China. I don't think they moved all that much. His country would have been surrounding, would have been filled with people of his relation. Understand? Get out of thy country and from thy who? Thy kindred and father's house. Look at the familial, the genealogical language. Get away from the people you're related to. Now, 
I am not saying, hey, everybody listening, get away from your relatives. <laughs> See, context is everything. Context is everything. But he is telling Abraham that I'm picking you out of all of these people. And I want you to get away from your family, from your blood relation, from your previous seed, where you came from. Because we all know what's going to happen to Abraham. He's going to get some specific information, advice, and charge his life's goal, what he's oriented toward. Get out of all of these other people. You're going to do something special. You're not going to be like everybody else. People were looking at all of this through what lens? Genesis 3.15. God's going to put enmity between the seed of the woman, Eve, and Satan. Now, you have to think about that. Well, Eve, she's the mother of... Everybody came from Eve. That's right. That's why as you go along in the Bible, every page, what does God do? He narrows down who he's talking about. Once you get past Cain and Abel, we already know Abel's dead. He doesn't choose Cain, Seth. Wait till he got to Noah, and he picked Noah because Noah was just in his generations. He was perfect in his generations, his genealogy. Then you get to Abraham, and he tells him, get out of the way from your family so that he can do what? Singularly focus on this guy for his seed. That's what he tells him. Get into a land that I will show thee. Verse 2, I will make of thee a great... That's an ethnic word. That's a genealogy. That's a seed word. He's not talking about a socialist government, a dictator government, a republican government, a democrat government. He's not talking about the form of government nation. What is he talking about? I'll make of you a great group of people out of his loins. And I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. What do you think of when you hear those words spoken to Abraham, that you, Abraham, will be a blessing? What do you think of? What comes to your mind? Abraham, he's never met me, didn't shake in my hand, he didn't leave me a physical inheritance of money in a bank account, there's no land set aside. What do I owe Abraham? How does he bless me? He did bless me because through his lineage came that child that's born that we're getting ready to celebrate. So that's what he's talking about. Verse 3. And I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all... You can't get away from this. Families. Blood lineage of people. See, he has now told Abraham, after pulling him out of his cousins, uncles, second cousins, in-laws. He's got him away from everybody and he's telling him, you do what I tell you because we're starting something special with you. But in you, something is going to come out that's going to bless who? All the rest of them. The whole world. Every other family on earth will get blessed through this one guy. Remember what we read? God said to Eve, your seed someday is going to crush the seed of the serpent. And from that page on, your Bible keeps narrowing, narrowing, narrowing. Guess who also knows about this narrowing? Satan knows. You can see what he does in the life of these people. You know what happens very soon, right after this? There's a, just somehow there's a famine in the land. 
trying to starve them, kill them out. Or Abraham has to go down to Egypt. Keep your mind on this thought, Genesis 3.15, that Satan is told to him directly. He didn't overhear it. He wasn't peeping through the door. He wasn't listening through a keyhole. It was spoken directly to him. Someday, something is coming from that woman. He's going to crush you. And he starts working. Now, what we just read here in Genesis to Abraham, all of it was surrounded about lineage or seed or family. That's everything that he told Abraham. Country, kindred, you're be the father of nations. In you will all the families of the earth be blessed. So he's delineating seed that your seed is going to, what comes out of you is going to bless all the rest of them. And he pulls him out. So now, what happens in your Bible next? We now know this guy is 75 when God calls him. He has how many kids? Zero. He can't even have any, he and Sarah. Now that's a strange way to start a lineage of seed. But God likes to draw attention. And he has a woman that's 90 and Abraham is 99 when they finally have a son. And that's the the next thing that happens. Abraham and Lot, they separate. And let's go to chapter 15. Genesis, we've got to get to Revelation 22 in the next 40 minutes. (laughs) Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Don't fear, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, why is he telling him that I'm your reward? Because of the next verse. Abraham said, Lord, what will you give me, seeing I go... They had no kids. What's on Abraham's mind here? I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. Eliezer is his top servant. He runs everything. And if what happens if Abraham dies tomorrow? Eliezer gets it. And Abraham is thinking, you, you told me somebody that would come from my own loins was going to inherit, was going to carry this on, and that exactly what my name means, I'm going to be the father of nations. How's the whole earth going to be blessed through me if... I don't even have kids. Notice, seed. All this language is always around seed and what comes after you. Verse 3. Abraham said, Abram said, Behold, to me you have given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars. That word tell, in the Hebrew, that's a, there's a, another rendering of that can be to count them. And also to tell their story. Tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. What is God talking to Abraham about? Very generalization. I I don't ask trick questions. It's always right. It's an open book test. He's talking to him about his kids. And not just the immediate generation. See, that word seed is special. There are some seeds you you plant, and without tending, without watering, without harvesting, without doing anything, they just keep reproducing. The seed falls in the ground. The next year, even more comes up. The next year after that, a hundred more comes. And then the next year after that, a thousand more. That's what seed is does. That's the nature of it. And God is talking to Abraham about seed. He had a complaint, Abraham did. And God 
I love it. He pulls him out and he says, you start counting because he raises expectations. Don't just think of one. You better get ready for lots of presents under the Christmas tree at Grandpa's house. Tons. Next thing that happens in your Bible. Well, let's see. Before I leave this part, let's look over at verse 13. Because if we can get there soon enough, he said unto him, Abraham, know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that's not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. What's he talking about? Egypt. This is forecasting that your seed is going to be taken slaves in Egypt. The next verse says, but after four generations or so, 400 years, they're going to come out. Now, you know who else heard that? Satan. Think ahead with me in your Bible since we can't go through every page in the next 40 minutes. What happens when they come out of Egypt? Moses leads them over to Israel. They don't go in. They send 12 spies in. What do those spies be? Giants. Do you think that it's just by happenstance, by chance, randomness, that giants happen to be where God told Abraham his seed had to go? See, to me, that's a minefield. Satan is throwing up minefields because he knows God doesn't lie. And if he's told Abraham in 400 years those people are going in there, guess what he's got waiting for them when they get there? Giants. And what does David do to one of them? You want to know why God loved David? One reason. One reason. Because he took on what Satan had put up in front of him and destroyed it. The Bible tells us that that David and his men went and killed all of Goliath's brothers and kids. David solved problems. He created some, but he solved problems. The big ones that God wanted taken care of, (coughs) David was pretty good at it. (coughs) In Genesis, uh, the next chapter, Genesis 16, is all about Hagar and Ishmael. What's that story? Well, they can't have kids, or at least they haven't yet. And so Abraham's wife tells Abraham, well, I've got this handmaid. Why don't you have a kid through her and we'll just call it my kid? And so they did that. And when they did, God said, that child, he is, because he came from you, he's going to be blessed and he'll be a great nation. But what won't he be? He won't be the promised son. Chapter 17 Verse 18, Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Ishmael's about 13, and Abraham loves him. And he wants him to be that promise. But God says, the next verse, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. This whole Bible is a picture of two seeds. Two seeds. And I'm not talking about Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac and the devil. Because right here in this story, from Abraham, you get Ishmael and Isaac, and God narrows it down. He's always doing it in every generation. Who does Isaac have as children? See, Sunday schools a long time ago, there was Esau and Jacob, twin boys. Isaac had twin boys. What's their entire story? Well, all the information we have about Jacob and Esau, what is it surrounding? Mm -hmm. 
in the fact that who the covenant would go to. That's what it's all about. That whole idea is where would it narrow down to which person? You can get a lot of, of fun things to learn about each of those guys and their stories, but it's all about it's going through Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 kids. And he doesn't spend all that much time because those 12, a lot of them, they were murdering, raping, they did a lot of things. But God had made a promise. He had made a promise to Grandpa and Great-Grandpa Abraham that it's coming through him. And God wasn't going to turn around on that. And so now you get to Exodus chapter 1. Now <laughs> we're getting somewhere. We're out of Genesis in, 20, in 25 minutes is all it took. Do some quick math. There's 39 chapters in the Bible. That's 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> Exodus chapter 1. And it first starts off by telling you all the children of Jacob that are there present in Egypt. A new pharaoh arrives that doesn't know Joseph. Joseph's the reason that they're there. And that new pharaoh, instead of praising Joseph and the Israelites, they start to persecute them. To the point, in verse 16, the pharaoh tells them, When you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then you shall kill him. What should you be thinking of there? Genesis 3.15 Trying to kill the seed. If it's a son, kill it. See, I don't read that now. Sure, when I was 15, 20, I read that and this is just Pharaoh. I don't think it's just Pharaoh. I think this is the devil working through mankind for his purposes. Kill these people off. But God always has a plan. He has a response. And the midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And they kept some of these guys back. And Moses is one of those miracle kids. You ever realize in the Bible how often either conception or survival of an infant is a miracle? It's in every book almost. Total miracle that Moses would eat. Not only does he survive, where does he grow up? In Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh's daughter goes down to the river, sees this kid that... They're hiding, takes him in, falls in love with him, and she goes and gets Moses' mother to come in and nurse him. God kind of just finds Satan and just right in the eyeballs. Every time he can. Take that, pal. You'll pay for his raising, his education, nursing him, his protection, until one day Moses flees, he's gone. But it's all about the seed how far ahead do we jump now? Let's go to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. You go through the time of when uh, the judges, or it's after when Moses gets them into the land, even after Joshua gets them into the land. 2 Samuel in chapter 7. And David is now going to be on the throne. God has raised him up. And a lot of time has gone by through this promise made to 
Satan that someday there's a seed coming that's going to get you. And Satan continually trying to kill off the seed. And God narrowing down exactly where the lineage would go on the tree, the genealogical tree. But here's a big one. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 11. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, because now they've, David has helped to rid the land of their enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Remember what we said at the beginning, be sensitive to the idea how often God talks about seed. You know, you ever notice the biblical language? He doesn't just always say the word children. See, children, we think, well, they grow up and, and they die, just like everybody else, just like you will, just like I will. My grandparents, great, as far as you want to go back. Everybody's done that. But when he uses the word seed, Seed is not one person, it's not even one generation. What is it? An entire lineage. That as long as that seed can continue to replant, it will always reproduce. And right here, God is telling now David, the kid that he took out of from a shepherd, walked in before Goliath and in front of the entire nation, slew that clown. Raised him up to be king. Now he's telling him, I'm going to set you up and what comes out of you as on the throne forever. And he goes on to say that if your kids follow me, do what I tell them, there'll be somebody on that throne of your lineage forever. But if they don't, he said, I'll turn them over to their, their enemies. So this has a double connotation because we know the story. They, they didn't obey God very long. They almost never did. And God did bring their enemies, and the throne was thrown over. See, when Jesus comes onto the earth during the Roman times, is there an Israeli nation where they have their government set up, and they have to go find out what their king says? No. They're ruled by the Romans. They were disobedient. God had taken his hand off them. The Babylonians, 400, 500 years even before that, God had removed Israel off the land for their disobedience. And they still don't have their government when Jesus is born. It's the Romans. So how do we read this? That God would keep someone on the throne of David forever. Well, there's the spiritual connotation also. And we'll see that when the angel comes to talk to Mary and Joseph and Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. Those angels have some information about these two kids, these cousins, John the Baptist and Jesus. They mention something. Let's go to Psalm 132. Oh, we're jumping over a lot now. Psalm 132. Verse... Uh, let's start at verse 9. Psalm 132, verse 9. Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness, and let thy saints shout for joy. 
Here's why. For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David. And here's what he swore to him. And he would not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. He'll never turn from that idea. And here's what you learn as you read through the Bible, that from Genesis 3.15, when God told Eve and the serpent that their seeds would be competing in the earth, God started just narrowing it down page after page. He went to Noah and to to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and those 12 tribes. And when he got to David, he said, it's coming through you, that it's your seed will sit on this throne forever. And as we learn in the New Testament, when God talked about seed with Abraham, in Galatians, in the places in Romans, when he says he's talking about their seed, he says not singularly, not the, the plural of everybody's seed, of the Jewish nation, of everybody who counts himself a Jew, but the seed, the singular seed of what he promised Abraham was that one kid, Isaac. And he was a picture, the New Testament tells us, of Jesus. See, Abraham couldn't have kids. Old guy. Through a miracle, they have one. Picture of Mary and Joseph. Mary can't have children, not in her current state of not knowing a man. See, the virgin birth. That miracle is a sign of our miracle, that we become Abraham's seed through belief, through faith. When you accept God's plan and what he did, God counts you as one of them. That you inherit the promises. All these promises that we read, you inherit those things by faith. The New Testament teaches God looks at you as Abraham's kid now. And that you are heirs. That word heir, that comes from inheritance. You inherit something. See, Jesus came out of that lineage. That's why we're called his brothers. Because we inherit the same thing. We're of the same lineage. So what we're learning here in these last couple of verses is God narrowed it down through David. Now see, David had some difficulty in his kids. Some of them tried to kill him. Solomon would take over his throne. And so it goes down through Solomon and you just keep following and keep following. And this whole Bible is a story of where is it going to end? Where is this lineage finally going to show the fruit that it's been talking about all through history? It's the greatest who done it? It's the best novel the world has ever seen. But a lot of times we don't see it because we look at one piece of the puzzle so long and we get so good at just looking at that one piece that we don't know where it fits in the whole story. And the Bible is a story of this idea of lineage, the two seeds, Satan's seed and Eve's seed. Let's turn to... Let's go to uh, Luke chapter 2. Oh wait, before, on our way there, we've got to go through Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. 
because there's some real important markers that God puts down as a stake in your Bible of, hey, look at this. This is how you identify when that seed gets here. In Isaiah chapter 7, God is talking to the king Ahaz in Israel, and he's trying to get something across to him, and he decides, I'll give this guy a sign. Even though he won't be around to see it, he tells the whole world. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself... uh, Wait, let's start at verse 13. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of who? That's not poetic. That's not meant just so it kind of rolls off the tongue. House of David. That's not why it's in there. Why is house of David listed? Because that's a marker for what event? The Messiah, the seed of the woman, the one day that's going to come and crush the serpent's head. Where's he coming through? Let's see, Noah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and, and David. That, he has to come through David. And that's why that's included there. It is, it, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now there's a sign if you ever had a sign. Because that's never happened but one time. That a young girl who never knew a man, who was never intimate with the male species, could give birth. And yet it happened. He's the only one. This verse also tells us what his name would even be. Isn't that amazing? This is 700 years before Mary and Joseph. They'll call his name Emmanuel. God is even now starting to narrow down what they'll call him. Now when you get to Matthew and the angel comes to Mary, the angel takes her back to, remember what you read in Isaiah. That's what he quotes from. Since we're here, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Notice how he does not talk about this special person coming as an adult. In all of these verses, how is he presented? Child, a son, seed. God is always tapping the reader on the shoulder, hearkening back to the beginning of his Bible. That it's the seed that's coming along through these people. See, there, you know why we don't pray? There's lots of reasons why we don't pray to Mary. Yes, she was special because of, of what happened through her that God chose her, but she lived to be a certain age and she passed away just like the rest of us. But not her seed. See, the seed, it all came down with one bright arrow to point to one person. And even though Mary was used, just like Rahab was used, the harlot, Ruth was used, a Moabite, the Bible takes you through these things. One thing it shows you is those individual people, they're not that important. Nothing like what the seed is in importance. Understand? Even though David was the the greatest king, Moses was the best lawgiver, Abraham, Mr. Faith, None of that compares to what came through them. See, you learn those characteristics, 
about their life on your way through, following this roadmap. But when you get there, when the child is born, for unto us a child is born, it says, the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's getting all these descriptive titles that are going to surround his ministry and his government. Now right there, verse 6 in Isaiah 9, that used a lot of language about government. He's a prince. You know what princes are? They rule. They are in charge of governments. A counselor, there is someday on this earth, even though it hasn't happened yet the first time when Jesus came, there is going to be a physical government that he will be in charge of. We, we, Christians overlook that all the time. They think he was just that little lamb of God that got slaughtered. <laughs> yes, he was. Because that was the plan of God to pay for sin. But that's not how he remains through eternity. That lamb in Revelation says he's coming back with what? With wrath. Yeah, to rid the world of sinners. To set up this throne of David that didn't get set up the first time he came. Just because it didn't get set up the first time doesn't mean it's not going to happen. See, Jesus didn't take the sword to anybody the first time, did he? Not even close. Do you know what it says about the second time that he comes? It does say that that will be used. That his garments will be... People don't want to hear this. They will be splattered with blood. The only reason we need to know about that stuff is it's in our Bible. And it describes what's going to happen the next time he comes back here. But keep that in mind. Just because it didn't happen the first time, don't think, well, then he must not be associated with that. Yes, he is. That was just not part of paying the penalty for sin. When he got put up on that cross, that's what it was all about. Paying the penalty for sin so that mankind can now have a choice. They've had 2,000 years to digest this plan. And if people look at that, want to make fun, say there's no way it didn't happen, I don't care if it did happen, heck to you, God, then there's a remedy for those people that God has. If somebody accepts it and say, I believe it, I mean, that's all they have to do is believe it and confess with their mouth that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God. Something happens inside of them that live forever. And God designed it that way. It, it's, an, it's a remarkable plan. All right, where are we at in this story? We've gone through all these people, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Moses had his shot. David it has to come through David. Let's now go to Luke chapter... Let's just go in order. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Now before we read this, I need to create a, a mental image, a picture. If today we were to take a World War II veteran who was at Normandy on June 6, 1944, and there is one in this town, He's still alive. He, he does not like talking about it. Doesn't even want to, wouldn't want me to even mention it. But he was there. If you would take someone that was there, that heard the bullets flying, heard the mortars and the bombs screaming, saw people torn in half, 
maybe even heard Germans on the other side of the line speaking a language they had never heard before. You took that person back to Normandy today, 75 years later, guarantee you it would be a different experience than me going to Normandy who just loves beaches and likes the sand and to hear the sound of the wind. My experience would be totally different. I would be enjoying the day thinking, man, I just want to get a good tan. You know what they would be thinking? They'd be hearing every cry of a soldier, a comrade that fell. They'd still hear the bullets. They'd smell the smoke. They'd hear it all. They'd feel it all. Somebody that's been in the event, when they return years later, it's different versus somebody who has never been there. I, my kids, it is, language cannot convey to them what my maternal grandfather was like. No chance. The guy was born, raised in a dirt hut. He was the youngest of 13. Poverty beyond belief. All he knew was work. That's the only thing, and I, when I say work, I mean work with blisters and hands and sweat. That's it. He has no way to, to even talk to somebody who has computerized things in their lap. They couldn't carry on a conversation. There's nothing in common there. Reading what we're about to read here, the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus can be the same way. Most people read this and there's no connection to the names that are listed here. We, we don't know their stories. Most of these guys have a story in the Bible that tells about their life, the obstacles they overcame, their faith, their downfalls, because the Bible gives you it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Most people read this and they just, it's a bunch of names, they fall asleep, and they don't even get to the end of the list. But you know what God writes this, what he thinks of? He's taken back to every single event in the lives of these people. God relives the story of, in verse 1, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of who? Why is he saying that? Because he has been making a promise that this Messiah, this special person would come through who? First of all, it says here, the son of David, and it's working its way backward, comma, the son of Abraham. When God lists that, he's thinking of, I took David through that giant. and took David through the, the problems with the Philistines that he had, and the times that I saved him. And when he talks about the son of Abraham, he is reliving the entire life of Abraham. God is that 88-year-old man on the beach. This lineage to him is not just a lineage of names. It's a lineage, it's a list of what? Events. Events that got him and his people to this point when the Messiah is coming into the earth. See, God is reliving the story of Abraham, which is amazing. I mean, a miracle. It's not just a name to him, to us. Too many people read it as just a name. And Abraham begat Isaac. You know what all went into begatting Isaac? A lot. He first had Ishmael and Sarah and Hagar to deal with. It was, there was trouble. It was not fun. And yet he got, he got Isaac. And then God asked him to sacrifice him. And Abraham was willing to do it. That's in that story. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, 
And Jacob begat Judas and or Judah and his brethren. This is a list of God keeping his word, his promises to the whole earth. That's right. These are a list of seeds, and each one of those seeds grew to a flower, a plant of fruition, and there was some fruit, some good and some bad, in every one of those lives. Seed. This is a list of seed. And Judah begat Pharez and Zair of Tamar. Now that's a story. We can't even hardly go through that with kids in the room. What happened there? And Pharez begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and he begat Nasson, and Nasson begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. Now there we get to a story that most of us kind of know something about. Rahab was the harlot that lived on the wall on Jericho when Joshua went in to conquer the city. Rahab and her family were the only ones brought out alive, the only ones, because she hid those spies and said, the fear of all of you guys, it's on us. And she wanted to be with them. She wanted to identify with them. They brought her entire family out and she, got, she married this guy named Salmon. And she was a harlot of a non-Jewish race and she is included in the lineage of the Savior. She had Boaz. Boaz is the, what the story of Ruth is about. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. He's actually a picture of Jesus. Maybe we'll do that next time. Because you got Ruth, you cannot understand great portions of the Bible without Ruth. Revelation 5 makes almost no sense unless we know Ruth. But Ruth is also a non-Jewish person. And she is brought in as Boaz marries her. And she's included in this. Ruth has a baby named Obed. And Obed, Obed begets who? Jesse. And Jesse beget David the king. It just keeps working down. Look how mindful, how almost obsessed God is with seed. From Genesis 3.15, every page that you turn. And when you get here, God just stops and says, well, let, let's just recount it. Because there's been 2,000 pages here, let's recount it, get it fresh in the mind of the reader, because who are we working up to? Verse 16, Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. That word Christ, that's the promised one coming. That's his title. And it works, your, it works you all the way down to Joseph. It's remarkable. It's remarkable how God wrote his Bible to keep all of these stories going through miracles in every one of them until you get to right here, to make sure it happens. What does God draw your attention to to start the New Testament? What's the first verse? The generation of Jesus Christ, he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. Most people think it's just, I mean, it's just poetic. It kind of rolls off the tongue. No, it doesn't. The son of Abraham, the son of David, it doesn't really roll off the tongue. We get used to it. Because God keeps telling us that I told you so. He came out of David and he came out of Abraham. Just like he promised. So that we could identify him. See, I often think about this after letting my mind 
muse on topics like this. How, how is God going to react when somebody says, well, I, I don't know, I thought Buddha was going to treat me pretty nice down there on earth. And Muhammad, he was a good guy. Those guys aren't mentioned in here. And God never tells mankind that you can find anything through them. He went out of his way to make this open book test so easy and to draw your attention only to one person. And there's only one way you get to him. That's through this person, Jesus. Everything narrows down farther and more accurate and finer and finer until you get to one little couple, Mary and Joseph, on a donkey going to Bethlehem. That's the whole story. We celebrate Christmas and we, re we relive that story of them in a manger. But you ever, have you ever thought all the things that took place for God to get mankind's attention right there? Think back at the time that they were living. What did God use? Why were they there? Census. By whom? Whose decree? Caesar Augustus. Does anybody think that that guy was following God, that he loved God and his word? And that guy didn't know that God from a hole in the ground. Didn't want anything to do with God. And yet God used him to do what? To make sure that the event that had to take, they've got to get to Bethlehem. Because there's promises. He has to be born in Bethlehem. See, that's in the book of Ruth too. But anyway, God used even Caesar Augustus, the most farthest removed, politically especially, from God, the Roman Caesar, the person who they would tell the Roman citizens he is God, he's a Caesar. God used that idiot to get the world's attention that they're in Bethlehem. He's pretty good at this. And his Bible is filled with a road map. We have got a couple minutes. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Ha! <clears throat> Why not? Do we want to... Let's do Luke chapter 1 first. Because we've gone in order the whole way. Why not? Luke chapter 1 and verse 67. Now remember, John the Baptist's parents were... They could not have kids. Elizabeth was barren. They wanted kids, couldn't have one. Uh, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, was a priest. And he is in the temple performing his duties. And in verse 67, John the Baptist, his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost. I'm sorry, this is after he's been born. John the Baptist has been born. Zacharias is now, as this verse says, filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied. So what he's about to say comes from who? The Holy Spirit, which is God. What you're about to read is God's message. It's coming out of Zacharias' lips, but it's what God wants. Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of all his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. See, God, what does God draw the attention of everybody to? Told you. He <laughs> told you. That's what he's doing. He's telling people, I told you, thousands of years in advance. 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. See that verse right there. Verse 72. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers. That's lineage. And to remember his holy covenant. That word covenant appeared with Noah, with Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David. That lineage, God had made a covenant. You do what I tell you and I'll be with you. And the Messiah is coming through your lineage. That's what this is drawing attention to. Next verse. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Do you think God is forgetful? If you study the Bible this way, you will see that if, God, if you can ever find anywhere in the Bible where God said something, I don't care where it's at in the Bible. You know what you can do? You can take that to the bank. You can go to God and say, you said this. And he will honor it. Forever. This is 2,000 years after Abraham. Jesus' time. Abraham is 2,000 years before Jesus. We're 2,000 years on this side of it. It's a long time. And the angel speaking out of Zacharias' mouth, says, I told you, remember the covenant that he swore to Abraham. None of these people have ever met Abraham. They're nowhere near Abraham. Why does the angel, why does, or why does God bring this up? Because he cares about it. There's no other conclusion. God cares about his word, what he has told people. I tell you, that part, I love you start reading your Bible a little bit different now. And it's not this disjointed group of stories. What happened with Abraham was kept in the mind of God until when? Right there when he comes and he's born. And even much farther than that, up to our time. Luke chapter 2. Let's look at when Jesus is born. Verse 8, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And this is a messenger of God. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day where? In the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. They do not record the city of David just so people know where it's at on a map. The angel is recounting. He's born in the city of David. It doesn't matter if you know where the city of David is. He's telling you so that you know God kept his word. He kept his promise that his plan never fails. All of this... You can read your Bible in such a way that from Genesis 3.15, where God tells the serpent, Eve, and Adam, that one day the seed from this woman is going to kick you in the head. You can read every page after that as a direct result of that conversation that God had telling the serpent, you better look out. See, God even gave him a heads up. And there's still nothing he could do about it. You can read all the things throughout their Bible as that attempt. You remember when Haman tried to kill all the Jews? I read that as that's Satan trying to get rid of those guys because they know something's coming through them, don't even know which one of them, 
But if I kill all of them off, well, I got it. What about when Pharaoh and his chariots are chasing down Israel after they have left with Moses and they're up against the Red Sea? See, if they kill all of them right there, then what? Then God's a liar. He has to start over with somebody else. And he had already made the promise, I'm doing it through Abraham and his seed. Even when Jesus is born and Herod goes to kill every kid two years and younger, trying to kill all of them. What's that? Do you think Herod just, yeah, Herod was a lunatic. I don't think he did that on his own. That is Satan trying to make sure that the seed of the woman is crushed, killed, drowned in the Nile like they did in Egypt, trying to get rid of, always trying to get rid of the seed of the woman. Your Bible is a tale basically of two seeds, starting Genesis 3.15. Father, we pray that the things that we have heard would strengthen us and encourage us, that we would understand our Bible maybe just a little bit more. Lord, we pray right now for Pastor and Tiff, that wherever they are, that you would invade in their dwelling, that you would protect them with the angels of heaven. Let nothing, no evil come near them. We pray that they would be blessed, that the meetings of pastors would be blessed and fruitful, that he would touch the lives of those Kenyans, that he would create relationships that would last a lifetime and into eternity. Help him plant seeds of the gospel in that foreign soil, Lord. Let him enjoy doing it. In Jesus' name, amen.